You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now present Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith. Hello, Radio Maria family, and welcome to this week's edition of Your Life is Worth Living, Reflections from the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. For over 50 years, Archbishop Sheen captivated audiences on both radio and television. Millions tuned in each week to hear his messages of hope and encouragement. On this week's broadcast, we will share a few of those reflections with you. And so we'd encourage you to sit back and relax and enjoy one of the greatest communicators of our time, the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Hello, Radio Maria family, and welcome to another edition of Your Life is Worth Living here on Radio Maria Canada. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me. Uh, We will be sharing a catechism lesson today with you on the humanity of Christ. Uh, But before we get to that catechism lesson, we will share a talk given by Bishop Sheen a number of years ago entitled, The Three Kinds of Love. And so let us begin this hour with prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady, Seat of Wisdom, pray for us. Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I ask you to sit back and relax now, and enjoy this reflection by Bishop Sheen. There perhaps is no word more often used in our language than the word love. And today it is so often stated, anything is all right provided you love. Now let me tell you that is not true. Because love is not quite that simple. Unfortunately, we have only one word in the English language for love. And think of the ways we have to use it. I love the New York Mets. I love pickles. I love chickens. I love God. See how confusing it is? The Greeks had three different words for love. And I'm going to give you those three Greek words tonight. I asked Monsignor before I came out, how many in his parish and in this area did he think had forgotten their classical Greek He said, not over 12. (laughs) So if the rest of you will excuse, I will interpret for that, those 12, the meaning of the three Greek words. The first Greek word for love is eros, E-R-O-S, eros. It simply means friendship, human love. Eros was that little... Greek god that used to shoot arrows into the earth to make the earth fertile. 
Eros was not something that that pushed us toward an object. It was something that pulled us. It was attractive. For example, the love of a person, the love of art, the love of philosophy, the love of the good life. All that was Eros. To give you an example of that love, here is the engagement of G.K. Chesterton. If there are any unmarried men in this audience who have not yet proposed and who intend to, I would suggest that they take this down in shorthand. And all of you married women will regret that your proposal was not in this language. Chesterton wrote to his future wife, or spoke to her, and said, There are four great lamps of thanksgiving burning before me. The first, that I was born out of the same earth as you. Two, I have tried to love everything in the universe as a remote preparation for loving you. Three, I have never run after strange women. You cannot understand how much this prepares a man for true love. Four, my life ends here. It has led me to you. That is Eros. I once asked a husband what he would like to be if he could come back to this earth two years after he died, and he said, my wife's second husband. And that is Eros. Then came Freud. Freud changed Eros into the erotic. Then Eros meant sexy. And this come became, then, the modern understanding of love. The Greeks never intended that that kind of love should so degenerate. And the new erotic love takes the fig leaf. It once used to be put in Greek sculpture over the secret parts of man and woman, and it puts it over the face. So that the person is not loved but only the experience. You drink the water, you forget the glass. And this is modern love, eros, erotic rather. Now we come to the second Greek word for love. And you all know it, everyone. It is philia, P-H-I-L-I-A. You know philia because you know Philadelphia. Adelphos in Greek is brother and philia love, and hence Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. Philanthropic, philia love, anthropos man, love of humanity. Philia is not a love of person for person. Philia is a love for all humanity. Regardless of race, creed, color. Simply because people are made to the image and likeness of God. That is philia. Now you say, but I can't like everyone. That's true. Because liking is in the emotions, in the feelings. But we can love everyone. Because love is in the will. And it can be commanded. Hence our blessed Lord said... A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. 
You understand the difference now between liking and loving? I can make it a little clearer this way. I don't like chicken. Monsignor had chicken for dinner one day. <laughs> now, why don't I, I, like, I, why don't I like chicken? Well, because when I was a boy, my father used to send me out to a farm that he owned about 30 miles outside of the city. And the tenant farmer, in order to get in good with the Sheen kids, gave us chicken in those days every day except Friday. So that in the course of my young life, I rang the necks of 48,310 hens. At night, I don't have nightmares. I have night hens. I have visions of headless chicks squirming in barnyard dust, so I don't like chicken. But if you invited me to dinner and you had only chicken, and you would have been very embarrassed if I didn't eat. I would eat the chicken. I would love it because I could command myself to eat it. That's the difference between liking and loving. We may not be able to like everyone, but we can love them. We can get above our emotional attitudes. There was a novelist in Russia at the close of the last century by the name of Dostoevsky who gave us an interesting story about this kind of love. It seems as if an angel went down to hell and asked an old woman in hell, have you ever in your life done a good deed for anyone? She says, yes. Once I gave a carrot to a beggar. Very well, said the angel. I am going to let down a carrot into hell. And you get hold of it, and I will pull you out. The angel let down the carrot, and the old lady grabbed hold of it. And the angel began pulling out the old lady. And, of course, thousands of people grabbed hold of the old lady to get out of hell. Jesus, get off. This is for me. And then they all fell back into hell. Because there was no love of fellow men. I once asked a missionary in the Pacific Islands, what was the greatest virtue of the people? Well, he said, I can tell you the greatest virtue in terms of the greatest vice. It is the sin of kaipo, the sin of eating alone. They would go without food for three or four days until they found someone to share it. That is philia. An East Indian by the name of Singh, a Christian, wanted to go into Tibet to evangelize. He needed a guide to take him over the Himalaya mountains. And then gone up a short distance, and they were cold and tired, and they sat down on the snow. And Singh said to the Tibetan guide, I think I hear someone moaning down there in the crevice. 
The Tibetan guide said, don't be silly. We're almost dead ourselves. But Singh found a man in the crevice, crevice, pulled him out, took him to the village beneath, and was refreshed by that act of charity, came back and found that the Tibetan guide was where he left him, frozen to death. He had not warmed himself by an act of charity. This is the supreme act of philanthropy. I told you about this friend of mine who was 14 years in the communist prison. And he was so much beaten by the communists that he developed lung trouble and tuberculosis and was considered at one time the sickest man in the prison. A new prisoner was brought in who hid in his heel a lump of sugar. He took the lump of sugar out of the heel in prison and said to the other prisoners, who needs this most? And they said, give it to Richard Wormbrand. It was given to my friend, and he said, I immediately thought of others who needed that sugar. I hadn't seen sugar in six years. But I put the sugar on the bed next to me. Two years later, that sugar had gone the round of all of the prisoners and came back again to his bed. And then he started on another round. Imagine all of these victims of the communist persecution in their adversity being so devoted one to another. About eight years ago, I was on a plane going from New York to Chicago. And as the plane took off, the stewardess sat down alongside of me. She said, do you remember me? I said, no, I don't. I ought to, but I don't. Well, she said, two years ago on this plane, I sat with you for 20 minutes. And I remember every word you said. What did I say? Well, you began by saying you are a very beautiful girl. Did you know that of all the gifts that God gives, the one that he gets back last and least of all is the gift of beauty? He gives money and owners use it for the poor. He gives the gift of song and people sing for his glory. But too often when God gives beauty, he gets back nothing but a pile of old bones. So inasmuch as you are so exceptionally endowed, why don't you give your beauty to people who have never seen anything beautiful? That's what you said. Well, I said, that sounds just exactly like me. That's what I would say. <laughs> she said, I've had two years to think it over. And now I'm ready to do anything. When? Now. All right, come to my office and I will tell you where you are going. She said, tell me now. I'm ready to go. All right, you're going to a leper colony in Vietnam. So I sent her to a leper colony in Vietnam. She has a little jeep, drives around the villages and searches, particularly under bridges, because when lepers are driven out of villages, they hide under the bridges. And then she takes them to a leprosarium, and with a 
doctor cares for these people. And in one of her letters, she said, I do not know whether they ever think that they are looking at anything beautiful, but I know that I am the gratitude of these good people. This is philia, the second kind of love. Now we're coming to the third Greek word, and there's no English equivalent for this, so you have to learn the word. A-G-A-P-E. Agape or agape as it is sometimes pronounced. A-G-A-P-E. It was used before Christ, but never with any fixed meaning. But when a new love came to this earth, the love of God for man, the word eros would not do. The word philia would not do. So the Holy Spirit inspired the New Testament writers to seek about for some other word that would express this abounding, boundless love of God for man. And they hit upon the word agapine, agapine in the verb form, and it is used 250 times in the New Testament. The reading that you heard tonight from John, if you went into the original Greek, you would find that that word was agape. Love. Pick up the 13th chapter of St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. The whole 13th chapter is on love. It's the most beautiful passage on love in the world. And the Greek word is the one I gave you. You see, we had to have a new word. The world had never thought of sacrificial love. It's easy to love those who love you, as our Lord said. But to love when you're unloved, that's heroic. God loves me. Now, I am not particularly lovable. And God loves you. Now, maybe two or three of you will admit, too, that you're not particularly lovable either. But God loves you anyway. Why does he love you? Why does he love me? He puts his love into us. That's why... Therefore, we become lovable. As a mother, for example, will put her love into a child, regardless of what that child is, whether useful or not. So God puts his love into us. To give you a, an example of what this love is like, because it's so unearthly, well, suppose a lifeguard at a beach is asked if there was a very beautiful girl drowning out there on the surf would you risk your life to save her he very likely would say yes I would I would particularly if she's very beautiful I would risk my life well suppose there's a person out there dying in the surf who did you and your family a lot of harm would you rescue that person he would think about it now, that's the way God loved us. 
when we were unlovable, when we were his enemies, he loved us. Suppose this were a courtroom. A judge is here seated on the bench. Before him is his own son who committed murder. There is no doubt whatever of the son's guilt. He had murdered a boy. The father is bound to execute justice and he condemns his son to death. Immediately after rendering the sentence, he steps down from the bench and says to his son, I will die for you. That would be mercy. He would be just when he was sentencing him to death, merciful when he took his place. That is what God does for us, but that is not the total picture. Suppose at the moment that the son was condemned to death, that the boy who had been murdered walked in alive. The son would say, you say that I killed this boy? You sentence me to death? There's no murder. See, he's alive. I demand to be freed. And so we can say, we have been guilty of the death of Christ. We nailed him with that cross. As I look at him, I see there my own life. My autobiography has been written. The pen, the nails, the blood, the ink, the skin, the parchment. I'm guilty of that death. And on Easter Sunday morning when he rises from the dead, I can say, See, he's alive! I'm free! That's the meaning of agape, of love. Now come back to what I said at the beginning. Is it true now that anything is all right provided you love? No. What kind of love? Eros, erotic, philia, agape. And this is the love to which we are committed. Not just a sentimental love, but the love for the unlovable. For those who are anti-love. It is interesting, I don't know, should know... Should I go into this or not? It's the story of St. Peter. Well, I was going to conclude, but I will go into this love scene. I was at the spot myself. As a matter of fact, you have a picture of it. I was at the Sea of Galilee, where there are two great rocks. The Sunday after Easter, our blessed Lord appeared at that spot because the Gospel of John tells us that our Lord came to the shore where there was a fire and bread near the fire. Seven men were fishing in the boat. Our Lord said to them, 
Have you caught anything? Now remember, this is the Sunday after the resurrection. Keep that in mind. The Sunday after the resurrection. They could dimly perceive in the morning mist a figure. And John said, It's the Lord, the risen Lord. And Peter was there and he, he'd been naked in the boat and he put something around him, plunges into the sea and swims a hundred yards to get to our Lord. But then, as we read this story, we find that Peter is back in the boat in a little while, dragging in the net with 153 fishes. Why, if our Peter was so anxious to see our Lord, that he plunged into the sea, why did he go back to the boat? Because of that fire. Those tongues of fire were eloquent tongues. They were reminders of a fire of ten nights before, when three girls, one after another, came up to Peter and said to him, have you been with the master? He said, I don't even know the man. And they reminded him of the night he denied our blessed Lord and he couldn't stand the fire. Those flames were like the fire of hell. And he plunged again into the deep. Then when he came back, the Lord asks him three times, do you love me? Now listen carefully. There were two in the original gospel, two Greek words that were used in the conversation. One word was philine, philia. The other was agape. I'm going to translate philia by natural human love. I'm going to translate agape by a totally divine, sacrificial, committed love. The conversation is as follows. Simon, son of John, do you love me with the divine, totally committed, sacrificial kind of love? And Peter, who had denied our Lord three times, was not going out on any more limbs. And he said, Lord, you know that I love you in a natural, human, friendly kind of way. Second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me with a divine, totally committed, sacrificial love? And Peter said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you in a human, natural, friendly kind of way. The third time, our Lord said, Simon, son of John, do you love me in a natural, human, friendly kind of way? And Peter was sad because the Lord seemed to doubt the other. But the Lord reached down and took the little love that he had and told him to feed his lambs and feed his sheep. And this is the beautiful story of the two meanings of love as they are in the gospel. And may you carry away 
in the meditation of this evening, the kind of love to which you are committed in the gospel. You will always think of that word agape when you see it in reference to the love of our blessed Lord. You know, my good people, we never find perfect love here. Never. Every woman promises a man a love that only God can give. And every man promises a woman a love that only God can give. We try to relive the beautiful moments of love but they cannot be relived. They cannot be recaptured. Why? Because it was not the moment. It was not ourselves. It was the divine that was shooting through us. It was a moment of eternity making use of human love to remind us that our love is not the source of love. All that we ever get are fractions. Sparks of love. That's all. Sparks that have fallen from the great hearth of love, which is God. When you understand this mystery, then you will also grasp why your heart is not perfect in shape and contour like a valentine heart. Remember the valentine heart? Always perfect in shape. Your heart isn't that shape. Yours heart is not perfect. There seems to be a little peace missing out of the side of every human heart. And that may be to symbolize a peace that was torn out of the universal heart of humanity on the cross. But I think the real meaning is that when God made the heart of each and every one of you, he found it so good and so fine and so lovable that he kept a small sample of it in heaven. And then he sent that heart into this world where you would try to capture all the love you could, but where you could never really love with your whole heart because you haven't a whole heart to love with. And you'll never be perfectly happy, never be wholehearted, never be really at peace, until you go back again to God to recover that peace that he has been keeping for you from all eternity. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith. Hello, Radio Maria family, and welcome to another edition of Your Life is Worth Living. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me to learn our faith together and to be inspired by the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. What a beautiful reflection that was on the three kinds of love, and I hope you'll be able to meditate on that this week. And so let us now turn our attentions to our catechism lesson, and this is lesson number 10 of 50 lessons that Bishop Sheen gave a number of years ago, and it is entitled, The Humanity of Christ. Please enjoy. Peace be to you. We have emphasized to a great extent the divinity of Christ, rightly so. But it often happens that we forget the humanity of Christ. 
and it is of that that we would speak. There are two verses in the scripture, one from Isaiah and the other from the epistle to the Hebrews, which seem to be contradictory. Isaiah says that our blessed Lord was reckoned with the transgressors or sinners. In the epistle to the Hebrews, that he was separated from sinners. One with them, and at the same time, not with them. He was with them, reckoned with sinners, inasmuch as in his human nature he took upon himself all of the penalties of sin. He was separated simply because he was God. And also because even in his human nature he was like to us in all things save sin. Now we will penetrate rather deeply into the meaning of this human nature that Christ assumed. Remember, it had no human personality. In a certain sense, therefore, the human nature of our blessed Lord was unlimited. It was almost as if, for example, we had a playground in which there were no fences or walls, then all children could come into this playground. Now, the human nature of Christ, simply because it was not capped, it was not limited or confined by a human personality, could embrace within itself all the human natures of the world. In other words, that human nature of Christ represented, to a great extent, the human nature of every single person that has ever lived. You read his genealogy in the Gospel of Matthew, and in the genealogy of Luke, you will find saints, but you will also find sinners. There was a bar sinister in his escutcheon. You find Gentile women like Ruth. You find a public sinner like Rahab. These were typical of the humanity that Christ assumed into himself when he became incarnate, but also every single human being that would ever be born until the end of time was incorporated into this humanity. Hence, there is not a Buddhist, there is not a Confucianist, there is not a communist, there is not a sinner, there is not a saint that is not in some way in this human nature of Christ. You are in it. Your neighbor next door is in it. Every persecutor of the church is in it. When therefore we are puzzled about how other people are saved, we need only realize that here is implicitly all salvation, all men in Christ. They may not recognize their incorporation to Christ, but in a certain sense, every person in the world is implicitly a Christian. Implicitly. is in that human nature. 
Just go back and think of all of the repercussions of the sin of Adam. There isn't an Arab, there isn't an American, there isn't a European, there isn't an Asiatic in the world who does not feel within himself something of the complexes, the contradictions, the contrarieties, the civil wars, the rebellions inside of his human nature, which he has inherited from Adam. We all struggle against temptation. And why? Simply because our human nature was disordered in the beginning. Let me tell you, there is a terrific monotony about human nature. You must not think that you are the only one in the world who has a tortured soul. Now, if the sin of Adam had so many repercussions in every human being that has ever lived, shall we deny that the incarnation of our blessed Lord has had a greater repercussion? Can it be that the sin of one man shall have greater effects in disordering human nature then the incarnation of the Son of God has an ordering all humanity? That is why I say that everybody in the world is implicitly Christian. They may not make themselves explicitly Christian. But that is not the fault of Christ. He took their humanity upon himself. Just suppose that there was a great plague which affected a wide area of the world. Then some doctor in his laboratory found the remedy for this plague and made it available to everyone. There would be some who would seek the remedy. There would be others would not. They might say, how do I know he has the remedy? Why should I bother? I will cure myself. Are they not all potentially saved? It is certainly not the fault of the scientists that they are not cured. It is the fault of people themselves. And so it is with the person of Christ. He brought salvation to all men. Oh, and it is up to us to find that salvation in him. That is one of the reasons why our blessed Lord was so hopeful about humanity. He always saw men the way he originally designed. He saw through the surface, the grind, and the dirt, the real man underneath. He never identified a person with sin. He saw sin as something alien and foreign, something that did not belong to a man, something that mastered him, but from which he could be freed in order to be his real self, just as every mother sees beneath the dirt on the face of her child, her own image and likeness. 
So God always saw the divine image and likeness beneath us. He looked on us very much the same way that a bride looks on a bridegroom the day of the marriage. And as a bridegroom looks on a bride, each and every one of them are at their best. Later on in life, they may fall away from this idea. Or perhaps they will forget the idea. One day a woman came to me and told me that she could never love her husband again. And I told her to try and think back of how much she loved him the day of the marriage. And they stood side by side at the altar. For that is the way he really was. What the woman had to do was to see beneath the distorted image the real person to whom she committed her life. And this is precisely what our Lord does in coming to this earth. Even when men raged and stormed beneath his cross, he saw them as homeless and unhappy children of the Father in heaven. And for them he grieved. And for them he died. This is the vision our Lord has of humanity. But now we want to bring this home in a little more intimate way. And here we're going to take a term called transference and try to make clear what the humanity of our blessed Lord did in relationship to our sins and our suffering. There are three kinds of transference in the life of Christ. There is physical transference, there is psychic transference, and there is moral transference. If our blessed Lord did not come to this earth, to undergo every single kind of agony and torture and pain that we ourselves suffer, then we could say, does God know what it is to suffer? Did he ever go without food? Was he ever betrayed? Was he ever blind? Let me tell you the best way to describe our blessed Lord's humanity is that he is a God who took his own medicine. He made man free. Man abused that freedom and brought upon himself all of the ills that he is heir to. And God came down and took upon himself a human nature in order that he might feel every kind of torture of the human soul and every twisting pain of the human body. That is what I mean by transference. First of all, physical transference. We read about this in the gospel, namely that our blessed Lord took upon himself our sicknesses and our illnesses. I was always very much disturbed about this particular passage because there seems to be no record that our Lord was ever sick. He must have had a very perfect human nature. After all, he was conceived by the divine spirit of love and also born of a woman who was immaculately conceived. Therefore, his physical organism 
must have been a perfect specimen of man. This seems also to be indicated by the mere fact that I suppose every woman wants to be the mother of a great son, and one day when our Lord was preaching, some woman shouted out in the crowd, Blessed is the womb that bore thee, and the breast that nursed thee. She would have loved to have been the mother of that man. And then, too, when we find these soldiers and the enemies crowning him with thorns, beating, scourging, buffeting him, spitting in his face, ridiculing him, what did all this mean but an attempt to drag this lovely human nature of Christ down to their level. They could not bear the majesty of his being as they would rob a man of his reputation. So also they would rob him of the nobility of his character. So our Lord must have had a perfect human nature. But this passage, he took upon himself our Sicknesses and our illnesses. What does sacred scripture mean by that? I think for about two years I have been pondering over in my mind that passage. And the answer came in reading the work of a famous Swiss psychiatrist. He tells the story of two doctors. Both of whom had healing hands. One of the doctors stated that whenever he healed anyone, that something of the sickness of that other person passed to himself. The other doctor stated that he often cured patients of angina, and he had to give up healing because he suffered so many attacks of angina. Is not this the key? Now let us go into some of the cures of our Lord. We often read in the gospel that when he cured the deaf and the dumb and the blind, that he sighed. We read that when he rose Lazarus from the dead, he groaned. I believe that at that moment, Our blessed Lord took upon himself the ills and the sicknesses of others. When he cured a blind man, I think that he felt inside of himself, not just the blindness of that one man, but all the blindness of men that have ever lived. So there's not a blind man in the world, in that deep cavern of senses where there is no light, who could ever say, Did Christ know what it was to be blind? Yes, he did. And the dumb. The mongoloids. Did he feel that? Yes. He, the word, the eternal word, felt their dumbness. Not just of that one dumb person whom he healed. But of every single dumb person. And when he rose the dead and brought them back to newness of life, 
I think he felt the agony of death. He went into that fever. As we know, he actually did in the Garden of Gethsemane. St. Paul tells us that he died for all men. In other words, the death that each and every one of us will have to undergo. Christ himself felt. He knows what death is. Knows what your fear of death is. This is the Christ that comes to you. That is why we say he's the only one that can ever understand your illnesses and your sickness. And why? Simply because he has that sickness, that illness inside of himself. He bore it for you and with you in order that you may have strength and patience as he did. Then there was not only physical transference. He also suffered psychic transference. By psychic transference, I mean that he took upon himself all the loneliness of people, their mental ills, the tragic effects of their psychoses and neuroses. He felt all of the darkness of the atheist. He knew what it was to be a skeptic and a doubter. He knew what went on in the heart of any man who raises a clenched fist. Of all those who hate so much that their mouths are craters of hate and volcanoes of blasphemy. After all, if our blessed Lord was to redeem the atheists and the communists, he had to know how it felt to be an atheist, did he not? How it felt to be a communist? He had to feel their God-forsakenness as his own. That is why on the cross, his darkness crept into his soul. He confessed to his father in, in his human nature his utter abandonment. So he uttered that mysterious shriek. My God! My God! Why hast thou abandoned me? Here he traversed the darkest valleys and deserts of mystery with all human brothers. We might almost say that this is a moment when God was almost an atheist. It was a moment when he almost went into hell. But with this difference, that in that terrible torment of loneliness, he cried to God. And so from that moment on, when anyone says he is forsaken by God or he denies God, he must realize that he has a brother who endured the bitterness of separation to the very last extremity of Golgotha. And if he showed the way, then we can find the way out too.
This was the loneliness of Christ in the garden and the loneliness on the cross. Like a sponge, the silence of our Lord soaked up all the evil. And because he soaked it up, evil lost all of its strength. After all, when an atheist complains about the ugliness and evil of the world, does he not know in his inmost heart that this is not the way the world was intended to be? He's affirming the very existence of God by the intensity of his complaint. Without God, there would be no one to complain to, and in his complaint, he has Christ to whom he can go. And finally, was moral transference. Moral transference of sin. Sacred scripture says that our blessed Lord was made sin. By that is meant that he took upon himself all of the sins of the world as if they were his own. Every blasphemy was put upon his lips as if he himself had spoken the blasphemy. Every theft was in his hand as if he himself had committed the theft. His flesh hanging from him was in token of all the rebellion of the flesh of the world. He knew what sin was. Perhaps I can make this clear to you by telling you that some years ago, a girl wrote to me from a large city of this country telling me that at the age of 18 she went to her first dance. She went in company with her cousin. Her house was some distance from the gate. Her cousin dropped her at the gate. And in that distance between the gate and the front porch, she was attacked by a stranger. In due time, she found herself with child. The only ones who would believe her were her mother and the pastor. Neighbor women said, oh, isn't it terrible? The poor woman has one bad daughter. Some girls in the choir would not allow her to sing because she was wicked. And she told me of all of this torture that she endured, and she said, what's the answer? I wrote back to her, and I said, my dear girl, all of this suffering has come upon you simply because you bore the sin of one man. I therefore assume that if you ever bore the sins of ten men, you probably would have suffered ten times more than if you ever took upon yourself the sins of a hundred men. Sufferings would have been a hundred times worse than if you ever took upon yourself the sins of all the world. you might have had a bloody sweat. That's where your sin was and mine. In that bloody sweat on Calvary. In this human nature that so loved us that we call it the sacred.
You have been listening to Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith, here on Radio Maria Canada. Hello, Radio Maria family, and thank you once again for joining me for this hour of reflection. And so I'd ask you to bring a friend with you next week. And until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace.